We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid. And I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. There's a lot going on in the news these days, and yet we know there's another kind of truth that's found in literature that's necessary to grapple with. Today it's Book Club Day on Forum. With some of you, we've been reading Nawaz Ahmed's debut novel, Radiant Fugitives, set mostly in San Francisco in the years after President Obama's election, where nasty undercurrents rode just underneath the swell of hope. It's a book about politics and faith, family and queerness, the fog, and when it lifts. That's all next on Forum, after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Forum regularly brings listeners' conversations with authors, of course, but a couple months ago, we decided to create a special offering, Forum Book Club. So each month, we select a work of fiction written by an author with California roots, which we announce a few weeks ahead of our live interview with the author to give listeners a chance to read the book and share questions and insights over social media using the hashtag ReadWithForum. Readers can also share your comments and questions during our live show today, as always, of course. Our book club pick this month is Nawaz Ahmed's debut novel, Radiant Fugitives. Set in San Francisco in and around 2010, This book is really about the intense relationship between three women. Seema, a lesbian and political organizer who's about to give birth, her sister Tahira, a doctor who has chosen a strict Muslim life, and their terminally ill mother, Nafisa, who has come from Chennai, India, to attend to her pregnant daughter and unite her family. But this story is not solely a domestic one. The New York Times noted that Ahmed's point is that we are not in charge of our own lives. We are not just nuclear families formed by our relations to one another, or if we are, then only partly. We are to a greater extent enmeshed in a very large world with myriad forces acting upon us in ways large and small. 
So today, we'll be talking about both the intimate intricacies of the book and the grand forces in which they're bound. We've got an esteemed panel of literary critics coming to the table in a few minutes, but joining us first is the author himself, Nawaz Ahmed. Welcome to the show. Hi, Alexis. So I'm good so, to you. <laughs> so thrilled to be here. <laughs> <laughs> and we're, we are thrilled to have you. Uh, welcome back to the Bay Area, at least the airwaves of the Bay Area. Um, I know you spend a lot of time here, and I'd love if you could think back to that time and kind of draw us your map of the Bay Area. Like, where did you live? Where did you go? What were the lines that you drew with your travels across the region? Ah, uh, um. I first moved to San Francisco and lived in um, Tenderloin. That was my very first uh, exposure to San Francisco. And from there, I moved to the Castro, then the Mission. And uh, that, I would think, is like the triangle that I lived in. Um, I had a bike, and my bike was my major means of transport. Mm -hmm. um, so biking down to Caltrain and taking the train to work was the way I navigated the city for the largest part. Mm. Is And then South Bay and then biking another um, another 30 minutes or so to get to work. So it was a long commute, but it was mostly through biking that I got to know San Francisco and the hills, of course, which of course require a lot of strategizing to get around. And yeah, and thigh strength. Yeah. Um, so your life as a tech worker was is is not really in this novel. Like there there aren't people you know commuting down to Silicon Valley. There aren't people talking about code. Do you think it's still filtered into this book in some way? That experience, a very particular kind of Bay Area experience. Um, I tried to keep it away <laughs> as much as I could. Um. Yeah, I think it was a very conscious choice not to let that particular life um, come into this book because I think I was trying to reestablish myself as a writer to think of my previous life as a computer scientist as something in the past. Hmm. At some point, I think I want to think back and bring those ideas into my writing, but I had to reinvent myself. And I think that's where it comes from, this notion of, uh, I used to be a computer scientist, but now I'm a writer and I decided I actually needed to go and get a degree so I could actually even think of myself as a writer. Otherwise, I couldn't give myself permission to even write. Yeah. There was so much of the past that I was holding on to. So why don't we get into this book setup? Um, you know, it's, in some ways, it's very pure and simple. You know, it's a mother and two sisters. Can you kind of describe that triangle and why it's so complicated? <clears throat> yeah. So we have uh, Seema, who I think is at kind of at the center of the book. She was the apple of her father's eye, and her father, in a sense was the one around whom the family revolved. He was this charismatic person who liked romantic poetry. And he was he's a doctor back in India, but he was also interested in the arts and acting. And uh, he took up poetry as a way of reaching beyond the moment. That was his big thing. Like, 
Um, and so when Seema is, and Seema is his favorite daughter, and Nafisa and her mother Nafisa and Tahara, um, the two, and her sister Tahara are uh, kind of subsidiaries in that relationship. But when Seema is exiled, when she comes out, she's shocked. She doesn't expect that her father would not come around. And I think that becomes like a traumatic experience for Seema. And not only for Seema, but for the whole family itself. The whole family feels shattered by that moment and don't know how to um, respond to it. Tahara responds to it by becoming religious, by taking on Islam. And her mother doesn't know how to do it. You know, one of the things that I think is is really lovely about this book is it, it's one in which like pious people, like tr- truly faithful people kind of get their due. Like they, they get good lines. They experience sort of trans- transcendent moments through the practice of, uh, of Islam. And I have to say, I think I, as a completely secular person who grew up in an aggressively a-religious household, I think I actually sort of felt jealous <laughs> of this experience that, that people are having uh, of the infinite. Do you yourself have those moments or are you more like me sitting on the outside going like, oh, that looks like it would feel good? Um, I have to admit that I, I've, like you, I have been like envious, not jealous, but definitely envious of this uh, notion of something that you could cling to that gives you some kind of structure, some kind of way in which you can live your lives. Um I think I have in my own family in India. I mean, there have been very uh, people whose uh, faith seems unshakable and, but also quite profound in the way that it shapes their worldview in the kindness and the goodness it brings to them. And I do uh, envy that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but I myself am not. I'm yeah. pretty aggressively secular, as you put it. Yeah. Oh, and I think there's also this fascinating dynamic in the book where the two sisters really feel judged by each other's choices, which I think most people who've been in a family can understand. Um, but in, in Seema's case, and in some of the less religious characters, it almost seems like they know the freedoms that they enjoy outside the practice of religion, and yet they haven't made those choices so that they add up to like a fully meaningful life yet. That is true, and I think Seema is struggles with that. I think, and that's why she she has the freedoms. But I, as an immigrant in a different place, I think she's still trying to find her footing, and she doesn't yet know how to do it in America. I mean, she feels judged as a brown woman. She's like how a lack of power. I think is what Seema feels as a brown woman. She feels lack of power even in the queer communities and uh, especially when the events in the world uh, seem to force her to see herself as even more powerless there's the Iraq war that comes up in the book mm-hmm. there's uh, and so I think yeah Seema has not yet found her space and I would say for a lot of immigrants I would say I think maybe in that kind of a space mm-hmm. where America is still a place where we have yet to find what home means and what it means to make us as American. Yeah. 
What was your experience of the the post 9-11 world and the beginning of the war on terror? So-called um, war on terror. I was in India when 9-11 happened. So I was actually seeing all the news from outside, like all the towers uh, collapsing. I saw them from outside. And, uh, and when I came back, which was a month later, it already felt like the country had somehow changed. Um, I have gone through, I think, many brown Muslim men or even women with names Ahmed have gone through being pulled out of line every time we come back. I think every time I leave the country and come back, I find myself pulled out of line, taken to these smaller rooms where I'm asked by agents, like, what was I doing? Why did I go out? Who did I meet? And I know that that is the, I mean, that it's all driven by the suspicion. And I even asked, asked them, are you asking me because I'm Muslim and because I'm thinking, but, and they would say, no, 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 we're just, this is routine. This is just ordinary questioning. And I would say, no, it can't be. I mean, why me? Why just me? Um, so, so there is that cult thing, I think, where you are suddenly looked at with suspicion and then it becomes even harder to think of America as home. Like, how mm. do you, when you're trying to make America your home, how do you juggle with this further way of, uh, uh suspicion that, yeah. Well, it also seems that the, oh, Obama's election for people who were really experiencing Islamophobia in this very intense way, it, it, it had um, this this difficult and quite dangerous undercurrent, even with the soaring kind of hope and change of, of the times as well. Yeah, I mean, there was this rhetoric that was used. I mean, not only that Obama was not um, American, but also that he was Muslim, that he was in mm -hmm. some way a secret Muslim that uh, and a jihadist, and he was going to somehow impose Sharia law in America, and that this was all a grand plan. And uh, that did make it feel like, okay, we have somebody who's bra uh, a person of color finally getting into the White what? House. <laughs> <laughs> yep. And this is and how I'm... they're treated, right? <laughs> exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. We're talking with Nawaz Ahmed about his debut novel, Radiant Fugitives. It's book club day, and we're about to bring in the rest of the members of the book club. We'll be back with more Forum after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. It's book club day today, and we're talking about Nawaz Ahmed's debut novel, Radiant Fugitives, a novel about queer, Muslim, and family identities set in and around the 2010 San Francisco political scene. We're joined by the author, and we have a 
book club team coming up in a second here. We want to ask you to, were you part of the mid to late 2000s political or queer scenes in San Francisco? And how does your experience compare with what you're hearing? If you did read the book with us, which moments, characters, or passages have really stayed with you? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or, you know, get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Nawaz, I wanted you to read a passage of the book um, so people can really hear the the texture of the language. It really has uh, such poetry and and, and beauty in this book. Okay. Uh, I will read this small section where Seema takes her sister's children out sightseeing in San Francisco. The day ends on the Golden Gate Bridge. The bridge is a tongue of fire lit by the sun's dying rays. The children shiver in the stiff breeze blowing off the Pacific, but Ashad is adamant about walking the length of the bridge and Amina is his willing follower. Seema gives in. Ashad wants to run ahead, but Seema insists the children hold her hand. The bridge is thronging with visitors. The curling waters of the bay are a steep drop below. See them promenading down the bridge? Anyone would think them a family, a mother and her two children walking hand in hand. Ashad's cap glows in the golden sunset. Amina's hijab flutters in the breeze, as does Seema's shawl. Seema has wound it tighter around her shoulders and head now, no longer pretending to be chilled. She's glad for the children's hands, warmth shared between them. The warmth reaches the inch of me, burrowed deep in her body. Soon, she'll have to return the children, like books borrowed from a library. They sense the end nearing too. Amina clings tighter. Ashad becomes urgent with questions about growing up in Chennai with their mother. Seema answers, hesitantly at first, then loosening up. She talks about two girls who slept in the same bed, who went to the same school, who read the same books, who played the same games, who sang the same songs including the one about the rocking horse that escapes. Why haven't we seen you before, Seema auntie? Amina asks. Will you come to Irvine to visit us? Before Seema can think of a lie, Ashad replies, No, silly. If she had wanted to, she'd have come before. He glances sidelong at Seema, but Seema senses no hostility in his remark and is baffled. Don't you like us, Seema auntie? Amina says, I like you. Why did you say that? Seema asks, directing her question to Arshad. They come to a halt under one of the towers of the bridge. Arshad hops onto the lower railing and peers over at the water. Don't, says Seema says sharply, and he jumps off the railing back onto the bridge. Why did you cover your head this morning? He asks, looking directly at her. I was cold, she replies. San Francisco's cold. She shivers involuntarily. Ami says you don't practice deen. She told you that? I asked her why you eat non-halal meat. Why don't you practice deen, Seema auntie? Why don't you submit to Allah? Well, why do you? The question slips out of her even as she recognizes the absurdity in interrogating a 10-year-old. The three of them are protected from the wind by the tower and they don't have to struggle now to be heard. The world seems to be holding its breath. 
I'll stop there. Oh, man. It's always the 10-year-olds who really know how to get at you. That was uh, Nawaz Ahmed reading from his book, Radiant Fugitives. And I want to add a few other people to our conversation. First, we have Anita Felicelli, author of Chimerica, a novel, and the short story collection, Love Songs for a Lost Continent. Welcome, Anita. Hi, thank you for having me. It's nice to be here. We also have Zahir Jen Mohammed, the visiting assistant professor of English at Bodun College and a Kundaman fiction fellow. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Let's have Vanessa Waugh, columnist with the San Francisco Chronicle and author of the forthcoming novel, very exciting, Forbidden City. Hi, great to be on. And finally, uh, Shireen Hemdi, a professor of anthropology at the University of California, Irvine, and author, Our Bodies Belong to God, Lissa, and a forthcoming graphic novel about a Muslim American girl. Welcome. Thank you for having us. So, Anita, I want to turn to you. I, I know that this passage is one that sort of stuck with you, um, and I was wondering why that was. You know, I think what's special about the passage, I mean, there's a number of reasons it stuck with me. One, it's in San Francisco, so I'm automatically predisposed <laughs> to, to be into it. But there's also, you know, um, a tension between the sisters that I think is not only relatable, but complex and uh, sort of the aunt, you know, the aunt, uh, niece and nephew relationship is also one that's a little bit fraught in this, in this book. I think sometimes, you know, when siblings follow different paths, there's a little bit of uh, resentment and jealousy and judgment occurring um, around those two separate paths. And it's interesting to see how that affects uh, the next generation where, you know, these, these two kids are, are very, very much um, believers. And, and she sees that. And I think she, on some level is, she's confused by that <laughs> because mm -hmm. she's followed, you know, Seema's has followed a very different path. And I find that, I find that to be very real. And it, it kind of uh, translates across the world that, that this is how it goes, that siblings, even though they have the same parents, maybe have the same, you know, very similar upbringings do follow very um, divergent paths. And then they have, you know, the larger extended family becomes more complex by the tensions between the siblings. There's also something so striking about the, the youth of Arshad just being like, well, if you want to do something, you would have done it, you know, whereas so much of this book is about the things that hold us back from doing the things that we want to do, both, both personal, uh, political, global. I, I want to also ask you about uh, particularly San Francisco part of this book. I promised that we would talk about the fog in in the beginning of the show. And I, I'd love you to sort of reflect on fog as a metaphor in, in this book and also, you know, in, in other San Francisco books, like what what this book does specifically with the with that incredible feature of our of our city. Yeah, I think um, fog is something that I loved in this book. It's definitely when I'm driving home from the city. I am immediately struck by the fog and how it makes me feel like I'm at home. So I think it very much characterizes the city for me. But I think also what's interesting about it in this book is that it is a metaphor for numerous different uh, aspects of the book. So I think it represents the fog that divides us from each other where we can't quite see each other. Like you know, Tara and Seema don't quite, aren't, quite fully able to comprehend each other. So there's this fog between human beings. 
the book explicitly calls out fog as uh, something that's set, over, set out over America um, and American politics. And I think also, uh, you know, the book weaves in romantic poetry in a very beautiful way. And there's a fog, you know, um, fog is a strong image in Keats's poetry, uh, in, in his poetry about autumn. And I think the whole book is very autumnal because we're here, you know, at a point of just before death or before an ending. And, uh, that's not a spoiler for people listening. You find that out in the first three pages, I promise. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, no spoilers. I don't give spoilers. I'm actually very cautious about spoilers. But um, but yeah, no, I think I think that that sort of uh, fog as a characteristic of autumn uh, lends some resonance mm -hmm. to the sense in which we're we're approaching death. Yeah. As I hear Jen Mohammed, I, I wanted to bring you in to talk about sort of the multilingual aspects of this book, right? I mean, there is something about it that's that's so wonderful because there's English and there's Urdu and there's this, these components of romantic poetry and there's also the Quran. And I, I thought maybe you could talk about the, the way in which that was actually executed and how you felt about it. Yeah, I thought it was one of the most incredible things about this book, the way that Nawaz... Um, doesn't really pander to the reader, doesn't uh, overly translate things. I think one of my critiques of a lot of um, immigrant fiction, and I totally sympathize with why people do this, is they have to translate everything. It's oftentimes called the explanatory comma. So it's like a samosa, comma, a triangle-shaped thing <laughs> that stuffed with potatoes. And I, I find that it, 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 A, it slows down the story, but B, it makes me feel as an Indian American outside the story. Like, wait a minute, why is this person explaining to me? So there's a beautiful part in the book where um, Seema and Bill get married at, you know, in San Francisco. And the end of the section is Kabul, uh, spelled with the Q, uh, which means like I accept in Arabic, which is what you say when you get married. And Nawaz doesn't explain that. Um, and I, and I, I, I admired the way that he trusted us as readers, but also later in the book, um, I have actually opened because this is one of my favorite pages, 341. He quotes a, a surah, a chapter from the Quran um, called the surah, is called, I believe it's called Kafirun. And he doesn't explain that it's from the Quran. It's, you know, he just quotes it. And it's just right in the middle of the narrative. And for me, who grew up in a religious family, um, I recognized it right away. And I thought, wow, this is beautiful. Um, and I, I, I thought that was such a really... It's, it's an incredible gift that Nawaz gives us as readers that we're going to do the work with him. Um, you know, so, some people may not get everything. I'm sure the references that I didn't get, um, but I, I admired that he he trusted us that we would do the work, and I did do the work because I wanted to because I cared mm -hmm. about these characters. Mm -hmm. And it's not like anyone criticizes Joyce for not getting every <laughs> you know, reference in in his books. Um, Nawaz, do you want to talk a little bit about this? I, I mean, obviously, a decision that you made to directly incorporate some aspects of both poetry and the Quran, just right right into the text. Um, I did want the reader to come across these um, sections as a reader, and not through any kind of uh, inter interfaced by by the narrator themselves. Like Ishtrak doesn't explain it. I mean, he is narrating the whole story and he is in fact narrating that section, but he just puts it out. In a way, what I wanted was that Ishtrak, the baby narrator himself is coming across these passages and is imbibing them himself. So that's the way his voice grows. 
he is dealing with these passages from the Quran, with the poetry, as much as the reader is. And uh, yeah, that was my intention of that, yeah. a way of throwing the thing in so that he has to grapple with it himself. And um, so does the reader. For And I, and I think it, it really works. Like I know the exact um, passage that Zahir was just talking about. And, and I came across and I thought like, that is beautiful. And is that a piece of the Quran? It actually makes you like, it defamiliarizes uh, a lot of the different components of language that we come across um, in this book. But for, for listeners who've been listening closely, you just heard that there's a baby narrator. <laughs> um, and Vanessa Waugh with the SF Chronicle, I wanted you to talk about this. I mean, this book is narrated by a newborn child. Um, it's, it's obviously a device, um, but devices I feel like should be judged on whether or not they work. Um, do you think that this device really, really worked? Oh, definitely. Um, because I think, and so we know, again, no spoilers alert, we learned from the you know very first uh, line that it's being narrated by Ishraq. But I think it's what's wonderful. And, um, you know, as, as a writer or novelist, you're always like, well, how do you pull that off? Um, and I, I think Ishraq um, is also omniscient in a way, although, um, as Nawaz was just saying, like he's learning um, the beauty of language of the Quran and of Keats and Wadsworth, you know, along with the reader, um, we get to see him commenting and dipping into the heads and histories of his grandmother, his his mother, his aunt, um, and you know, ad addressing them. Um, it, it, you know, being able to see things about them that maybe they can't admit or see about themselves. Um, and just, um, you know, I thought, I thought, I, I don't, I don't want to call it a device because it seems essential to the, the telling of this novel, um, which I think even ties back to what Anita was saying earlier about fog, right? Like the ways that we cannot or are unable to know each other or, or even ourselves. So I think having Ishraq as this um, baby omniscient narrator uh, is a way of sort of um, fiction, you know, what's so powerful is it is that it can do things that we can't, you know, we can't read our ancestors' minds. But with this, we can definitely see how no community is a monolith, no person's a monolith, right? We're all very complicated um, individuals and the relationships are complicated. And it's just, I don't know, in the end, it's very empathetic and, and, and big hearted uh, way of uh, approaching this cast of characters. Mm -hmm. And I think there's, you know, if this was Latin American literature, um, it would also just be purely like magical realism all the way, you know, um, in a in a way that interestingly not referenced in a, a lot of the, uh, the the reviews of this book. Um, Professor uh, Shireen Hamdi, um, I wanted to come to you on the opposite kind of character there. Uh, like Barack Obama is definitely a character in this book. Um, can you can you talk to us a little bit about how that works? Yeah, so uh, I love this book. I should just say it is it is really masterful. And from going from the baby narrator to Obama, you just pose them as opposites, but really it, it, there's um, an echo in the arc where the baby is at this precipice deciding whether to live or not live, and he and he's almost in charge of that decision. He's gonna either make the effort of taking that breath and really fight. For something or not and he's at that fork of a road when um Zahir was just mentioning the Quranic verse the the Quran says 
you know, this is at a time when the um, the tribal people in Mecca were like, who is this prophet? This guy who says he's a prophet, he's going to mess up everything in our rules and we're not going to be powerful anymore. They're really angry. And so they say, hey, you know, don't totally mess up this business we got going on with our gods that we that we control. So you take some of ours some days, we'll take some of your Allah thing some days. And that's when the prophet comes with this verse and the prophet says, no. You know, on, on certain things, there's absolutely no compromise. You take your path and I take mine. Mm-hmm. And that intrans- that that statement that there are some things of which there is no compromise is haunting this book. And it's haunting mm-hmm. Ishraq at that moment of, do I take a breath? I will be compromised. I will be drawn into all of these things. Do I want to be? And this is Obama's character, right? That from the start, he is already has to be this compromising character. He purports to be the bridge of these things that are unbridgeable. And Sima's furious and Sima's intransigence and stridency towards Obama echoes her sister Tahira's stridency with religiosity. And the other echo is Nafisa, the mother who's really trying to bridge together her two daughters. She's trying so hard to bring them together. She is the Obama character in this book. That's how I saw her, where, you know, she's trying to do this impossible feat, and it might be too late for her. And, um, so it's it's really so brilliant from the from the baby, <laughs> the question of this fork in the road and the fork that begins in Chennai, and lands you in San Francisco with a very liberal queer community that's politically active, to this very kind of Salafist revivalist form of Islam in this mosque centered community in Irvine, Texas. These are two almost mutually unintelligible Americas that the girls are founded and they're the two Americas that Obama is trying to bring together. And they're the two daughters that Nafisa is trying to patch together in the family. And the baby doesn't want to have to choose either. He doesn't, he's already implicated in all of these stories and negations and contradictions. So I think it was just masterful. It is Forum Book Club Day. You were just listening to Masterful Exposition by Shireen Hemdi, professor of anthropology at the University of California, Irvine. We're talking about Nawaz Ahmed's book, Radiant Fugitives, and we'll be back with more Forum after the break. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Coming up in our next hour with Mina Kim, we get an update on the Calder Fire, which is prompting evacuations in the Lake Tahoe area. Then, we talk to journalist Al Press about his new book, Dirty Work. It examines the hardship and emotional toll borne by slaughterhouse workers, prison guards, and others who do the work society continues, quote, morally compromised, but essential. To listen to past shows and subscribe to our podcast, visit kqed.org forum. 
And for the latest updates on our programs and guests, find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. We're at KQED Forum. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about Nawaz Ahmed's debut novel, Radiant Fugitives. It's about queer Muslim and family identities, and it's set in and around the 2010 San Francisco political scene. We're joined by the author himself, as well as Anita Felicelli, the author of Chimerica, a novel. Zahir Jen Mohammed, visiting assistant professor of English at Bowdoin. Vanessa Wah, columnist at San Francisco Chronicle. And Shireen Hemdi, a professor of anthropology at the University of California, Irvine. Um, Zahir, I want you to tell us a little bit about the song that we just heard. Um, there are many songs and snatches of poetry that, that weave throughout this book. Um, tell, us, tell us a little about how you feel this particular song played into uh, the book. Yeah, sure. Um, so, Pierre Kieto, Why Fear If You're In Love, is from the great Indian movie uh, Mogle Azam, which is all black and white, but there is one scene that was in color, which is this song. Uh, and in the in the in the novel, Seema acts in it um, when she's a little girl in in Chennai, India. And when I got to the scene, I um, I started tearing up actually because so I used to live in India and I I would go to queer pride parades and oftentimes the song would be would be played, and when this song would play, uh, in, invariably many people would start you know um, start crying because. At least, at least in the in the circles that I was in 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 India and in Gujarat, this was often uh, an anthem for queer pride. Um, and so I don't know if Nawaz intended that, but when this this came, the song came, um, I got really emotional because I thought, wow, this, the way he weaves it in so beautifully. Um, maybe she didn't know at the time when she was acting in this in this uh, reenactment of the movie, but um, it it has really become an anthem, and it was played when 377, you know, which was criminalized homosexuality, was repealed in India. Um, and I just thought it was incredible how how he weaves it in. I mean, I think the one thing about this book, it's often said that it's a very political book, but it's also a very historical book, and that Nawaz excavates this history. So we have the Trikun, which is one of the first LGBTQ South Asian groups in the Bay Area. You know, Nawaz is also presenting us this history of the Bay Area as well too, this history of South Asian queer activism in America. Um, and th- I think the book should be understood in that way uh, as well, too. And then the song, wow, it's so beautiful. Just hearing it right now before the segment, I just wanted to continue hearing it. Um, <laughs> it, it, it just brings me chills. Yeah. No, I, I, you, you pick what you want to respond to out of that. Um, that song is one of my favorites, too. And um, it is definitely an anthem. And I knew it as an anthem even before I knew I was gay, if that makes sense even before I could even voice that I was gay, I knew it just because of what it says. Why fear if you're, if you're merely in love? And, um, and I have not actually heard it in the pride parades in India because I haven't been there for the pride parades in India, but I'm so glad Zahir that you mentioned that because I do know that it is an anthem and 
and it gives me uh, so much um, tenderness for not only the song but also for this movie that that somehow got um, it is um, it's it's I mean it's a love between a forbidden love between um, a dancing girl and a prince and so that notion of forbidden love is already there in the movie as like what does the world sanction what can be sanctioned and so I have held on to that movie it's one of my favorite movies too and it's something I've seen so many times and I was very thrilled that uh, Zahir caught that reference <laughs> uh, Rose, I also wanted you to talk about some of the South Asian queer history here in the Bay and to what extent were you participating in that and to what extent were you sort of just seeing it um, but maybe not an, an active organizer or participant? I mean, Trikon was my coming out story. Until then I had like come out in my, um, during my college years, but it wasn't until I came to the Bay Area that I actually found a community. And um, so some of the first events I went were the Trikon potluck. The first parade I marched in was through Trikon. We had all these um, cultural events that Tricone put out that I attended. There was a queer film festival that Tricone uh, put uh, arranged that I was involved in arranging as well. So um, I did take part and there were all these other fabulous activists who are actually doing most of the work and I was a participant, definitely. But um, it was family for many years, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Anita uh, Bellicelli, I wanted you to reflect on the the historical nature of this book because, you know, if you're a person of a certain age, let's say over 30, um, you really remember, and you were in San Francisco during that uh, early Obama era, everybody has their own kind of uh, constellation of memories of that time, you know, whether it's like people pouring into the streets uh, after Obama's victory, whether it's, you know, Prop 8, there's, there's a whole bunch of different... <laughs> good and bad things that happened during that time politically. Do you want to just reflect on that the, that recent history and how it becomes uh, a novel in this book? Sure. I think uh, the book explores that history, which is not that long ago, but feels a lifetime ago uh, now in a, in a really meaningful way. It looks at California on the precipice of change kind of twice, uh, with with Prop 8 and gay marriage. It also looks at you know, the rise of Kamala Harris, rise of Gavin Newsom, and, and sheds light on those uh, trajectories in a way we don't actually see reflected in the news anymore. And it, it has the feeling of being an insider to that history, which I think, you know, given what Nawaz just said, you know, it makes a lot of sense that it feels that way because it, it's a lived in experience. I think, you know, something that I noticed was that that when um, when Obama was elected, there was so much hope that there was going to be change, and I think we now look at that and maybe we're not as we're not as hopeful as we were in that in that moment. And definitely, I don't feel that San Francisco is as hopeful as it was in that moment. So I think it it does such an excellent job. It's it's just such a gorgeous. Or just look at that little window of time. Yeah, I think probably a lot of our listeners know this, but I, 
but in 2008, of course, the election that brings Obama to office also sees a, a, a constitutional ban on gay marriage added to the to California's constitution, and in you know that history has been compressed through time and kind of laminated all together into one kind of story. And I think one of the beautiful things about this book for me is how it brings back all those. It, it it restretches that history so you can see it again. The difference between the Obama people and the Dean people, the difference, you know, the, the different moments of these things that we later read as in Arc of Progress, it sort of re-shows uh, how they work. Nawaz, why don't you talk a little bit about how you decided to incorporate so much electoral politics specifically into this, people working on campaigns. Was that something that you just, from the first moment you saw SEMA, you were like, that's a political operative in San Francisco in 2010? Like when you saw that scene in your mind, did you know that? Or did that sort of reveal itself to you as something that was uh, going to be necessary? Um, I did have Seema, I think, in my very first drafts working on Kamala Harris's campaign in 2010. Um, so I did have that, but I did not really know at that time that I would go back and bring in Seema's life from 2004 to 2010 into the book. Um, I had her being this very charismatic personality who everybody was attracted towards. And what I found as the draft grew is that I needed to actually explore like what is that charisma about? And I needed to have her actually be in action in order to do that. She, I mean, in 2010, she's pregnant and really doesn't do much. So I needed like this, the backstory of her charisma. And it was trying to explore like, why are people drawn towards her and how does she react to them and how does she use them, manipulate them and all the rest as well. So that's where the politics started to, to come in. Mm -hmm. And I began to trace her path from, okay, here's she in 2003 at the, at the war on terror, I mean, the Iraq war protests. And then how does she get to this final place? And mm -hmm. for me, that was a journey I had to discover. And it was in, had a lot of research, but also figuring out what was too much and what was essential to her story. Mm -hmm. um, um, the, the, oh, go okay. ahead. Oh, oh strange. Heard a little strange thing on the radio, radio here. here. Um, I want to come to you, Shireen Hamdi, on the, a, another aspect of this book is just the, the way that all this hope and change is, is sort of was interlaced with the bad stuff that we saw come into flower later on, in particular in this book, really addresses that kind of Islamophobia that that came to the fore after 9-11, going in, a, uh, there was the mosque protests in different places, and just this overall sense, of almost like a, a deepening otherization of Muslims in the United States after 9-11. After and I wanted you to reflect on you know, as reflected in this book, that period of time there to now in a sort of post-Trump world, is is that continuity or was there actual discontinuity in 2016? So there's both, of course. So um, in the beginning, we see, you know, right after 9-11, you hear the discourse. And, and I think it's interesting that Seema and Bill, by the way, they bond over the uh, Iraq war, protesting the Iraq war. And that's really their first moment before they get really excited and in love with the Obama campaign. And that's really what is 
um, building us towards the war on terror, which it becomes this full-blown um, Islamophobic moment. And so at that time, when in George Bush's rhetoric about the Iraq war, there were good Muslims and bad Muslims, right? And so it was us, we're going to go in there so that we can help the good Muslims against these bad, scary Muslims. And so in that in that framing, you have Sima, who in that you know logic would be the good Muslim versus Tahira, uh, so supposedly the bad Muslim. And even, and I think part of also what I love about this book is that it shows within a Muslim family, there are so many different categories of traditionalism, you know, being Muslim, what that means in people's lives. And so the father is furious with Sima for for moving against his patriarchal authority and embracing this life as a lesbian. But he's similarly furious with Tahira for all this Islam nonsense, this jilbab hijab nonsense, whatever he calls it, because her type of kind of neo-Salafi revivalist Islam that she finds a home for in the US is really quite alien to him and Nafisa. And I think um, Nawaz does a great job showing that. So we have this good Muslim, bad Muslim moment, but in 2016, it's all Muslims are bad you lose the possibility of there ever even being a good Muslim. And I think Fiaz, who's Seema's kind of gay male friend, and by the way, the awesomest character in the book. <laughs> he's great. He really he, is great. He anticipates this, and he's the one who really reacts to hearing about the Islamophobic um, vandalism and graffiti and attacks on Tahira's mosque in Texas. He knows that that's an attack on him. Whereas Sima really distances herself to the point where she herself adopts Islamophobic language against her sister and says, look at you, you're, you're becoming jihadis, you're, you know, and doesn't realize how much she's implicated in it the way Fiaz does. And so Fiaz is almost kind of foretelling what's about to happen in 2016. Oh, so interesting. You know, I was wondering if we could talk a little bit too about the 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 scene in San Francisco, which we think of as kind of a, a liberal place. And I know that, uh, Vanessa, you were sort of covering San Francisco at that time for the Chronicle, right? Yes. And so uh, maybe guess. you can give us some of that, like, on-the-ground perspective. Like, how were these different threads, the sort of political activism, the hope and change, interacting with the sort of post-9-11 America on the, on the streets of San Francisco? Um, yeah, definitely. I would, um, but I just want to say um, what just one thing about Fiaz. Um, what what made him so um, such a, a, a sort of a crowd favorite, I think, was that I, I think he really represented the ways this novel also looked at um, as part of the scene in San Francisco. The way that San Francisco is a place where you find um, you know there's families chosen and families received, and Fiaz to me really represents of that time and you know and even now just like. The Such ways a great in point. Which, yeah, the ways in which we find home, find family, um, you know, maybe, you know, not of our blood, but just, um, I thought the, 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 the novel so sort of smartly um, and sort of, you know, it doesn't idealize political activism. Um, I think there was a line where he is going, you know, uh, Sima goes to a, a, a protest and is like, oh, they're going to trot out the people of color and then, but the crowd is largely going to be white progressives. So, and I, I mean, I just thought that, um, you know, from a reporting standpoint, like, you, you know, you're just uh, going around trying to get a lens on that, that first draft of history. Um, and, and back even to um, Anita's point, like there is this sort of, the fact that it's in a novel now kind of um, 
cements it in a way to, I don't know, reconsider it as something like, what happened? Like, let me look through the years, like what were the world events? And then largely seeing as Shireen seeing, said, said how these begin to sort of connect. Um, history connects, family connects, um, you know, it's all part of the, the larger themes of the novel. Yeah. Zahir, uh, Jim Mohammed, um, did you want to ask Nawaz a question? I think I got that in my yeah. in my. <laughs> I wanted to give you that chance. Hand you the mic. Yeah, sure. Um, so I know Nawaz. You've worked on this for ten years, and I'm so thankful you have. It's such a beautiful book. How did you change this as a person in writing this book? And I'm particularly interested in zooming in on the character of Tahar. I think one of the things I admire about this book, I think. The thing that makes this book most fiercely political is not that it's set during electoral politics, it's that you've created this Tahar who has such complexity and you have these beautiful passages of the Quran. So I'm wondering in, in creating these characters and creating this world, um, how did you change as a person um, in writing this book? Um, wow, that's so, I, that's a beautiful question, Zahir. Thank you for saying that because I think the person who did the last draft is definitely not the person who wrote the first draft. Um, I know that in order to write the last draft, I had to have gone through a journey. And um, my first drafts, I think, were written from a place of anger. There was this world that I felt I was not a part of or was finding it hard to find myself in. And that part of it was due to Islamophobia, was due to homophobia, the interactions of all these. And I started from that place of writing this book because I felt angry. And both Tahara and... Uh, um, and Tahara, in a way, kind of became that focus of anger for me, at least in my initial drafts. Um, but I realized that in order to write the book, I could not let that happen. The book would have been a very bitter uh, book at that point. And I wanted for myself to understand Tahara and what it is she gets and why does religion work and why, how do we navigate this kind of um, uh, divisions that are there. And in order to do that, I had to actually do the work of finding ways in which to understand and come to love Tahara. And I think by the last draft, Tahara is my most favorite character. She we, is the one. We've been talking with Namaz Ahmed about his debut novel, Radiant Fugitives. We've also been joined by Anita Felicelli, Zahir Jen Mohammed, Vanessa Wah, Shireen Hemdi. It's been the Forum Book Club. Stay tuned for another hour with Mina Kim. Thanks so much to all of you. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com.
We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.